0: Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasee View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how these countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like Benedict Evans or Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull. So I'm delighted to be joined by two friends of mine on today's podcast. And we're going to talk about jobs and more specifically jobs of the future. So we've got uh, my two guests. The first one is Jimmy McLaughlin, who used to be the tech advisor at number 10. So somebody I got to know when he was advising Uh, I think uh, Theresa May, who was obviously not my favourite Prime Minister by quite a long chalk, but Jimmy was one of my favourite tech advisors, and he's uh, wandered off and created a a career of sorts for himself, which includes a rival podcast, Jimmy's Jobs for the Future, which is slightly annoying because he keeps sending emails out to people on his mailing list saying how successful his podcast is and how it's number one in the Apple business charts and all that sort of stuff. But I thought I would have him on partly because obviously he's worked in tech policy at at 10 Downing Street, but also because it will be interesting to hear his thoughts about where the job market is going and what kind of jobs people will be doing in five or 10 years time, which is always a hard thing to predict. But the way Jimmy goes about trying to find out is by talking to founders and tech entrepreneurs about the kind of people they are hiring. And related to that is another friend of mine, Scott Vincent who is a highly successful entrepreneur who worked in the City of London for many, many years, despite being Australian, and who then went off and set up his own consultancy, which was also highly successful, uh, which he sold to Accenture a few years ago, and now has set up his new company, Digital Futures. Full disclosure, I am chairman of his advisory board, and Digital Futures is a for-profit company, but it is also a company which seeks from Scott's perspective to put something back by hiring people from diverse backgrounds and also focusing on hiring women into tech jobs, software engineering, data analytics, cloud computing, and the like, and reaching out and engaging with communities that perhaps don't have the same opportunities as others. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us, Ed. Let's start with Jimmy. Tell us about your podcast, Uh, obviously how successful it is, but some of the themes that have emerged as you've, um, uh, I think you're on your third series already.
1: Yes. Uh, Well, thank you, Ed. And of course, you were part of the inspiration behind uh, the podcast seeing that you could do it made me think that anyone could um. <laughs> <laughs> This is absolutely true you fight you finally made scott laugh which is uh, not something
0: i'm normally capable of doing
1: we will get more serious i'm sure in this conversation <laughs> but um yeah no we're on to our third series and yeah i started it during the first lockdown i'd left number 10 uh my way my wife is a um doctor so she went back uh to fight the um fight the pandemic and I was at home looking after a six-month-old and uh, it was at that time where you couldn't see anyone or or you know you couldn't even sit down in the park. So to fill the time while she was sleeping I started a podcast because I wanted to tackle the unemployment challenge that was coming up that we thought was going to be there. So I launched it a year ago and of course there's a certain irony now that we're recording this in uh, October 2021 and we are actually the problem where we've almost got too many jobs to be filled, which I'm not sure any of us thought we would be in that situation a year ago. So that was the, the instance behind it. And part of it came from when I was at number 10, I'd often get FTSE 100 bosses calling me just before 8am saying, you know, we're just about to announce the stock market. We're making a load of redundancies. And that of course would make headline news. Uh, but at the same time, we were at kind of, um, we were at record high levels of employment and the Prime Minister would say to me, you know, where are all these jobs coming from and so on? And it's, it's entrepreneurs like Scott that sort of, you know, perhaps hiring a, a dozen people a week or so on. And it doesn't make headline news, but these jobs are being created by entrepreneurs up and down the country. Um, and it's so in, inspiring. And so, yeah, that's the that's where Jimmy's jobs of the future came from. Yeah, it's uh, we we as you say, we're just about to finish our third series.
0: So, Scott, you are hiring people left, right and centre. You're not just uh, hiring people to work in your startup, if I can call it that. Digital Futures is a year old, but also obviously helping to get uh, young people in particular into employment, people who have uh, either graduated with degrees or don't even have degrees. But tell us how Digital Futures works for a start.
2: Yeah, so as you said, Ed, we focus on attracting a particular demographic to digital futures, in particular those that have potentially been overlooked from previous hiring processes. And we do that through an ecosystem that we've built, a very large ecosystem across the UK that involves mainly non-Russell Group universities, industry groups, community groups, etc.
0: And just for our US listeners, a Russell Group University is equivalent to an Ivy League. So, non Russell Group is non Ivy League. Uh,
2: essentially, we, uh, we use those partners to identify talent and, and, and drive their interest into digital futures. Uh, we then assess individuals based on their potential as opposed to their background or education, you know, looking specifically at, at four key attributes that we consider to be critical to lead a successful career in tech. And for those that are selected, uh, we then train them immersively for for 14 weeks where they learn uh, one of three major disciplines, full stack engineering, data science, or cloud. Uh, So they go through our course syllabus, uh, but they also uh, have the opportunity to achieve an industry-recognized certification as part of that training. And then we also, as part of that process, invest in their professional skills. So building their resilience, building their confidence, building their communication skills. And once they graduate from the academy, they then have the opportunity to work for a number of, uh, you know, the world's most prestigious brands, mainly FTSE 100 organisations or large multinational companies. And they spend two years uh, with that organisation and then they have the opportunity to join them at the end of that process based on our commitment to create sustainable employment.
0: So what I find interesting about this is that, you know, you talk about uh, some of the attributes they need in terms of, uh, or that you teach them in terms of resilience and so on. And there is this kind of uh, paradox going on at the moment in the kind of modern economy. On the one hand, there is the need for these kind of hard skills, which is software engineering, which uh, for me as an arts graduate, I kind of run a, would run a mile from thinking, am I capable of doing this? But also, I think there was a survey that came out of, from Google, where they did a, a in a typical Google way, they did a data analytics on their workforce: who stayed the longest, who got fired, who left. Yeah. and they found that of the ten top attributes, actually, the, the coding bit was the least important. It was it was all the other soft skills.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and look, I think the our, our clients are really clear with us that actually their selection criteria uh, is often down to the behaviours and the softer skills that the individuals uh, demonstrate as they go through the interview process as opposed to their technical skills
0: so jimmy let's uh in terms of all all the founders that you've talked to in the course of putting together your podcast what are the kind of jobs that are emerging are there unusual jobs new jobs new ways of doing things that are coming out i've talked to scott about you know obviously still the importance of soft skills as well as you know hard skills of, of actually being able to, to do the coding but What kind of things are your founders looking for, the entrepreneurs who are creating the new
1: jobs? Well, so overwhelmingly, the two that come up again and again are data science and software engineering, as Scott will uh, attest to. And so I always say to anyone I'm speaking to at schools and so on is, you know, if you can do those, go and do them. But the interesting thing that I've sort of found doing the podcast and, and going through it is that in a way sometimes the jobs aren't necessarily sort of dramatically changing. You know, the fundamental principles of business are designing something that somebody wants to pay for more money than it costs you and trying to tell as many people about it. And so it is funny that sometimes we think about all these jobs of the future. You know, we had Alice Bentnick on from Entrepreneur First, which is an amazing company, um, everything that it's doing there. And they were hiring at the time for a global community lead which sounds a sort of very new job and then you know Alice was talking about it and she made the point that it's effectively an alumni relations manager for a university is very similar to what it is and so it's the tools I guess that are changing so much Um, and that is I think what what is so brilliant about what Scott is doing is it's teaching people how to use these new tools because they are more complex and they can do more things and it allows People to scale things quicker. But that's been kind of my sort of key takeaways. You know, if you can do data science, software engineering, do that. But as you say, the soft skills and understand being able to sell and all those kind of things are, are still, you know, paramount importance as well.
0: I agree. You do agree, Scott. And you you've talked, but you also talk, and, and part of the kind of ethos behind digital futures is, and it's something that I very much support as well. And I've talked about in the past, is this aliving of the barrier between education and business because in a digital world the kind of technology you're going to be using is going to change every six months anyway so the idea that you can sit in a classroom for three years and learn something and then go into employment and be employment ready is is a joke
2: yeah I I think that's right Ed and and certainly we you know we're, we're seeing the the divergence between the educational system in the UK versus versus the uh, industry requirements and so that's why we you know that's why we're so passionate about our program and how our program you know really focuses in on the key skills that are going to be required not just today but you know as we as we sort of accelerate through the fourth industrial revolution you know most business models now will involve major elements of the skill sets that we're we're training in
0: absolutely I mean, I think the other interesting thing that I think about this whole jobs debate in a digital age, well, there are a couple of things worth exploring. First of all, uh, again, when I was a minister, one of the things that happens to you when you're a politician is you tend to think that all your problems are unique. So if you're sitting in a traffic jam, you think there are only traffic jams in Britain. And if your mobile signal is rubbish, you think it's only Britain that's got terrible mobile. But every country in the world as problems in every country, world, particularly particularly developed nations, have this problem of uh, recruiting people with the right digital skills. I mean, there is a massive shortage because the massive expansion of tech has far outpaced the ability to get, recruit people with the right skills.
2: Yeah, and it's, and, and it's not just about the acquisition of skills, it's also about the reskilling of existing workforces to keep them relevant. Um, because the last thing that we want uh, after COVID is, a a workforce that no longer has the relevant skills to support the direction of the organizations that they're working for and putting further pressure on the social system, healthcare system and and what have you. So, you know, it is not just about acquisition, it is also about reskilling and and the World Economic Forum has written about this uh, extensively, uh, suggesting that 54% of the global workforce will need digital skills uh, or be reskilled, I should say, uh, over the next five years.
0: So, Jimmy, do you? Uh, I mean, this must have been something that exercised you a lot at uh, Number Ten when you weren't dealing with uh, the nightmare of Brexit. Things like about where, where on earth are we going to find the people for the new economy?
1: That's true, and I think there's a. Um, you're right. It's a it's a common misconception that you think that we're struggling with it. I, I think it's a real challenge because I'm not sure. The common answer is, "Oh, we need to put more of this stuff on the curriculum," and actually, for everything that goes on the curriculum you've got to take something off it or unless you extend the school day etc so it's not that easy and as you say it's the relevance of it can fall away pretty quickly in terms of what is to be studied you know our school system as all school education systems are pretty antiquated and I do think one of the benefits and the legacies of the pandemic may be that we actually have a proper shake-up of the of the education system and I do think it's it's partly on businesses to be able to upskill people themselves now I appreciate that there is a cost to that and so on but fundamentally businesses know what they need better than teachers or government and so I do think there is a responsibility on businesses to be doing more of it and you are seeing quite a lot of it because of the Gove reforms you know Dyson has effectively built a university now where they get on the job training and so you know and James Timpson is doing stuff with Timpsons so more of this stuff is happening which is um, which is great and of course all the stuff that Scott is doing as well is another great example because it's businesses that understand their challenges better than government does.
0: Yeah so the the Gove reforms being Michael Gove the Secretary of State for Education and in fact when I uh, one of the first things I did when I was appointed the tech minister in 2010 was to commission some research from a guy called Ian Livingston who was the founder of Games Workshop, but has went on to run very successful games companies like IDOS. He campaigned to get coding into the national curriculum in British schools, and I told him that there is no way that Michael Gove will agree to that, because Michael Gove basically wants us to go back to having blackboards and chalk, and he's a kind of Victorian, backward-looking, Neanderthal figure. But how wrong I was, because uh, Ian persuaded Gove to put... Coding on the curriculum. And I sort of agree with you, Jimmy, that I think there is a lot to be said for having coding on the curriculum, because as Ian said, it's like Latin in medieval times. It's a kind of language you need to understand the basics of, even if the language then evolves into, you know, Italian or whatever. But I also worry about where we're going to get the teachers to actually teach coding. Ten years on, I have no idea whether there are any good teachers in schools teaching it without wishing to the teaching profession in any shape or form but it's quite a niche
1: area coding uh, as compared to say teaching chemistry how do you uh scott just sorry i'll, I'll take over as podcast host ed um <laughs> yeah, yeah show
0: me how it's done if if you if you could carry on because then we might reach number one in the apple business <laughs> charts
1: <laughs> um how how do you go for assessing it because I think this is one of the, the the big challenges with the two areas I cited data science and software engineering data science is obviously is pretty like if you're good at math you you know you've got going to be good at data science broadly but I do worry about some of these other things of like how do you actually do the testing for and do we have a whole load of hidden talent that just don't realise that they could be great software engineers because actually we haven't got teachers yeah. recognising those skills. So I'd love to understand, Scott, how you go about doing that and testing for those things.
2: Yeah. So we, we as, I, as I mentioned, our assessment framework focuses in on, on the key attributes that we feel are required to lead a successful career in tech. Uh, so those, those four attributes are curiosity, aptitude, commitment and ambition, um, from an aptitude perspective, you know, our objective is to build up a body of knowledge on the individuals as they as they go through the the process. And we have a number of uh, tests that we uh, apply, some of which are actually coding tests, but not not out and out, not outright uh, you know hard coding tests. So you know they they are more more sort of focused on uh, problem solving. And that gives us an indication of you know the individual's ability to actually grasp if you like the, the, the fundamentals required for code construction as an example so it's a it's really a variety of things but I think the what we certainly found uh, over the last year and you know we have I think, generated roughly around 7,000 applicants um, to date. So what we really find is is people with the highest degree of curiosity are the ones that do very well in software engineering.
0: There was an inspiring blog on the site, Digital Futures blog, of a woman philosophy graduate who kind of said, I didn't realise that philosophy would help me be a software engineer, but it's about logic and curiosity.
2: Yeah, well, there you go, exactly. Yeah, we and, and we see that, which is why we prioritise that as one of the key attributes.
0: And in terms of, you know, you reaching out to people from diverse backgrounds, I mean, it's three white men here talking about diversity, but I did get involved uh, a great deal in the diversity debate when I was uh, a minister, particularly more on the art side, on the kind of film and TV side, because again, it, it is this thing of, if you see someone who looks like you on stage, as it were, the subconscious conclusion you draw is that this is not a profession for me. So, changing uh, the appearance of people on stage and doing these jobs is, is in my view, a, a massively, massively important job. But it is also, I think, very important for companies and organisations that they have people from different backgrounds who will give them different perspectives. Even if the basic point about selling a product, if you're selling to a certain demographic, you sell in one way, and if you sell it, if you're selling to another demographic, you need to know. Uh, What are the things that interest them? So uh, how are you finding the kind of reception in terms of diversity, uh, in terms of the diverse uh, cohorts that you're putting into companies?
2: But what we found is the only I mean, I I guess the majority of applicants when we survey them, their primary reason for applying to digital futures is because we are purpose led and are focused on those two, those two big issues, which is great. But, you know, it's a virtuous circle. So the only way to attract, for example, females into technology is to have females into technology because they look for... Totally right. Yeah. So they, you know, they're looking for role models. They're looking for people, as you say it, you know, around the table that are are similar, both in terms of gender and background. You know, regrettably, the UK tech sector has, you know, one of the worst diversity statistics uh, in the world. We only have four percent of individuals from ethnic minority groups and only one in five are female so there is a you know it is a huge issue and as you say there are so many benefits for having diverse teams you let alone you know the ability of diversity of thought.
1: Jimmy
0: is that something you come across in your chats with entrepreneurs when you're doing your podcast?
1: Yeah I mean diversity is like a huge challenge even when you're trying to put guests together and so on right you know it's um, mm. I get I reckon I've had about 120 people write and asked to come on the podcast. I think it's exclusively white men, pretty much. What
0: well, you are your of your of your 120 of the
1: 120 that have pitched that have written and said, "Yeah, I'd like to appear on the podcast," etc. It is it is all men, and I think that's oh and that God. is PR agencies as as well, etc. It's just a it's a really really hard challenge because we are uh, desperate to try and keep it. Um, keep it diverse and so on and I think one of the one things with diversity as well is I I take your point about being on the seeing people on the stage and seeing people on, on television but that can even seeing that it can still feel like a long way and it's quite a lot of next door you know it's kind of like your neighbors and your kind of community as well is is sometimes like a really big challenge and that I mean that's partly why we do Jimmy's jobs is to try and sort of democratize careers advice because you know as the prime minister says that talent is spread evenly opportunity is not and i think he's kind of nailed it with that
2: i think he stole i think he stole that line off me by the way
1: <laughs> well that's that's ed doing a very good job as your uh, and your advisory <laughs> board and i think that's real how do you how do we do that is um is really hard because you know talent can come from anywhere but you know social capital does it matters usually
2: yeah, and, and I would just add to that to say that, um, you know, given various events over the last last year, like Black Lives Matter and, and, and other events, which has really brought, you know, diversity to the top of agenda, not just for, for UK PLC, but but globally, uh, to the point now where we're seeing you know, regulators like the PRA and the FCA uh, consult on diversity and, you know, with a view to probably regulating for it to ensure that senior management teams meet certain diversity ratio, and, and, and equally exchanges. So S&P, you know, potentially threatening to delist organisations that can't demonstrate improved to this. So it's, uh, it's quite remarkable, the direction of travel here.
0: Well, that was something that Downing Street, Theresa May, when you were there, Jimmy, looked at very seriously in terms of diversity on boards. I mean, we, we, we know we have the Scandinavian system, for example, which I think is, is Sweden mandates 50% female boards. Now, I happen to be quite relaxed about that. And I'm not on any boards and I'm <laughs> unlikely to get on any. So the door is shutting in my face. But I do think, you know, a bit like when the Labour Party in the 90s had all women shortlists. So I think sometimes you have to take draconian action to move the dial. I mean, what was the political debate
1: like inside Downing Street on this kind of issue? Yeah, I think it's um, I think you're right that it, it, sometimes you do have to take draconian action. I mean, I think, you know, governments using the the threat of kind of legislation and so on works, can work quite effectively on this, you know, the sort of 30% target for females on on boards and so on and saying, look, yeah, we don't want to bring this legislation in, but we'd like you to get there. And actually they have done that, but mm. yeah, it still ends up being kind of on the non-exec side and so on. And a lot of the same women holding lots of different roles. And I think that's a, that's a challenge is how do you kind of spread that wider. So yeah, I mean it's it's a huge part of what you're trying to do as a as a country, right? Like Ed, politicians go into it generally to make life better for other people despite all the sort of stuff that gets written about them and whatever. Generally, that's why they go into doing it and it needs to remain a driving force of it, I believe.
0: So can I just change a gear a little bit? Which is, you know, I'm very interested uh, in this Jimmy, in terms of what you've heard from the people you've interviewed, and Scott, in terms of the people you're trying to recruit. Staying completely neutral on Brexit, but does kind of the need to create homegrown talent is that becoming a thing for tech founders and for some of the big businesses that you're working with that we've got to recruit from the UK because we don't have the same flexibility that we had when we were members of the EU.
2: Uh, Well, I can give you my perspective on it. So I think there is certainly a lot more corporate conscience um, that that, uh, around now aligned to the government's broader levelling up agenda. You know, we are seeing government actually, you know, change policy regarding to procurement, uh, how contracts are awarded, ensuring that there is a minimum ratio of um, uh, homegrown talent, you know, in proposals uh, from areas that they want to focus on, as opposed to, uh, you know, firms accessing offshore talents. But I think the, you know, what, what COVID has done is clearly, you know, the fact that everybody's worked from home for such a long period of time, you know, has ha, and and organisations have still gone on and, and uh, you know, been effective and carried, carried on successfully, you know, it's raised the debates around, uh, you know, how do we access talents virtually and so on. So I think the The risk, really, to how this agenda could be destabilised is if UK PLC look further ashore in terms of accessing talent because they've proven that they can still work effectively remotely.
1: Interesting. Jimmy, what are you finding? Yeah, I think it's very interesting, isn't it? Because the pandemic will probably have a much bigger impact on this than, than Brexit. I mean, it was absolutely the top concern of every entrepreneur and BC about Brexit would be access to talent and the general signal that it sent out and so on and now of course remote working has become much more of the of the norm so that I think I mean it's such a kind of corporate cliche about you know it brings challenges and opportunities but I do think it, it is that kind of double-edged side on it Um, you know the fact is now you can be based anywhere in terms of you know levelling up and all of that you know and ed you were in government in 2010 when it was all about balancing the economy away from london and the southeast and financial services you know a lot of this stuff isn't new particularly it is amazing that people can be able to work from from anywhere but you do just learn so much from kind of being in person uh, so i think access to talent will continue to main remained kind of the biggest challenge because companies are nothing without their talent.
0: And we talk about reskilling. What does reskilling really mean in practice? I mean, I'm not kidding when I say that, you know, to me, uh, obviously, coding is a closed book and it's slightly terrifying. But in terms of, you know, Scott's analysis of, you know, people having aptitude rather than the kind of core math skills that they might need, how easy is it genuinely to reskill someone? At kind of what age? And again, including Jimmy, Is it something that your bosses are talking about when you interview them?
1: Yeah, well, of course. I mean, like starting the Jimmy's Jobs podcast is partly because, you know, I was was looking at what to do myself next. And I think it is, it goes back to, I made earlier. It can be quite difficult to assess your own skills. Actually, like it's um, obviously so intertwined as to who you are. It's it's quite difficult to know that and know what you might be um, might be good at. And that's where you need kind of employers or people to take a bit of a uh, bit of a, a chance on you with it. So I think it's the whole reskilling is. I mean, it's very hard to unlearn stuff, right? I think that's also a, a real challenge. You know, learning is not necessarily easy but it's kind of it's more straightforward than actually unlearning um, things particularly in that hard skill set area so I think that's um that's quite important to kind of remember that because we're all gonna have to do more and more of it right but is it something your people
0: the people you talk to bring up spontaneously saying you know one of the ways we've addressed our skills gap is you know we've gone after people in their thirties you know particularly when we're talking about diversity it might be uh, women who have, who have left the workforce to have children and want to come back in
1: yeah well i think that's a real big thing to be fair i think the competency you know how, how do you kind of upgrade people's competency how do you kind of extend them further you know i will always when i'm talking to the the guests and so on when we have pre-chats I always ask what are the top three things on your mind and talent will always come in there about partly how do you keep people motivated but how do you how do you upskill and and reskill people because the onboarding process for taking somebody on is you know it takes a while for people to um to bed in and that's that's why if you can use the talent that you've got is so important and I think it's got to be interesting in how seriously you think businesses are are taking this because it's easy to pay lip service to some of this stuff about we invest in people and skills and training you know how much of it actually takes place
2: yeah one of the organizations that we've been engaging with is a sorry Europe's probably second largest uh, retail group so they have you know lots of different companies within that group And many of them, because they sell retail products, are now reducing their their physical footprint uh, because everything's going online. And that's a really great, you know, this group is a really great example of where they are, you know, what they want to do is they want to take those individuals who are, uh, you know, typically of the age that we would look to to train at and, you know, put them through the Digital Futures Program to get them match fit uh, for, uh, you know, transitioning out of, uh, their current jobs in retail into corporate tech, so that that's a great example. But but re- reskilling really, it's it's not something that you do once. Uh, you know, it's something that you have to do continuously, and often involves uh, not just learning new technical skills, but also new, learning new ways of working. I think all organisations that we are either working with, or will be working with, or are in discussions with, you know, they realise that you know, the skills that they have within their organization today are not necessarily the skills that they will require in the future, in order to support, you know, their new digital business models, whether you're a bank, whether you're a pharmaceutical company, whether you're an airline, most industries now are converging around very, very similar technology strategies, you're know, requiring these these new skills. So they're, they're very aware of this. And I think concerned about it.
0: Can I ask about just the more general view of the, of the workplace and, and what's going to happen to jobs. So, I am, uh, without wishing to obviously steer this discussion anyway, I'm extremely skeptical. I can see the word robots on one of the books on Jimmy's shelves. I'm extremely skeptical of this thesis that says that uh, artificial intelligence, robots, and so on are going to destroy jobs. In fact, I think if you take all the kind of public sector areas that we traditionally lean into, whether it's education or health, Uh, I think the more robots, the better, because actually it will free up the people working in those organizations to do the stuff that's really needed, the interaction, the personal support. If you're able, for example, to have artificial intelligence diagnosing cancerous tumors, then you're going to free up the consultants and the radiographers and so on to um, actually engage with the patient. You'll get first of all, hopefully you'll get more patients because you'll diagnose more people uh, and you'll free them up to kind of focus on the treatment and the support so i'm a skeptic but i wonder what scott and jimmy think about workforce attrition the the impact of technology on people in the workplace and making their putting them out of work
1: yeah i mean look i I agree with your thesis so we've never had more technology we've never had more ai um we've never had more jobs so it's I, i i'm not sure it continues all the time on that kind of curve but i think where you put people will will change and so on um i mean the I think a great example is Jim Shark, right? And Ben Francis. If if people want to check out one episode, it's worth checking out the Ben Francis episode of, my, of Jimmy's Jobs because, yeah, he talks in there about how they've got a they've got a social disruption team, right? Now, ten years ago, social media manager didn't exist. Now companies do hire people solely to manage Instagram feeds or TikTok. You know, TikTok was a company that didn't even exist five years ago, and now there are like jobs being created and spun off. That So I think that's, you know, and now they have a team dedicated to looking at what's going on. And basically, you know, Jim Sharp built a model off that. And it, what is effectively is, it's just a new form of marketing. And that's always been a key part of it is like, how do you persuade people to buy products? Well, you've got to get in front of them and tell them things they want to hear. So it goes back to that point we are making at the beginning, like, you know, the fundamentals don't really change. It's just the way of going about it does.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think history has taught us that as you know, as we go through these you know, major periods of transformation, you know, as economies evolve, uh, as they innovate, uh, of course, some jobs will go or job types will go and be replaced by innovation. But as you say, Jimmy, you know, new job types and requirements will uh, start to uh, become more visible and 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 really replace that. So I I I think that it's just part of the natural evolution of, of an economy, basically.
0: I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think, uh, you know, again, I found as an MP, one, one of the really things that used to drive me absolutely r- round the bend was, you know, 20 years ago, I could have just put out a press release to my uh, local paper. But once social media came in, you know, every time I uh, left the room, I had to think, you know, I've got to do a tweet, a LinkedIn post, a Facebook post, an Instagram post. Uh, it was pretty exhausting, and that is a very good example of how technology, as well as getting rid of some jobs, say, is actually creating new roles uh, and quite in- interesting and stimulating roles, in
1: my view. But I'll just give you oh, just an example of my time from Downing Street of kind of AI creating work was that we were given these new iPhones. When I was initially started in 2016, we were on the old Blackberries and upgraded to, um, to iPhones. And the iPhone does that thing I remember thinking just wanting to send somebody a quick message about we must look at this almost like a reminder to to myself partly and I put the person's name in and then it said oh do you want to add so and so and I thought oh yeah well might as well actually and then I sort of like did that a few times and ended up sort of sending this email to seven or eight people and then this whole sort of snowball chain like exploded about this various and I just thought gosh that is a classic example of where ai actually sort of ends up making you know can kind of end up creating more work
0: you yeah, know very a very good point i get that a lot the other thing you touched on earlier Jimmy, which i didn't explore was because i could really disappear down a rabbit hole on this one which is you know education needs to change is the pandemic going to change education and i think you know what is fascinating with what scott is doing is is in effect you've created scott a kind of three-month short course which ticks every box you think is needed for uh, the jobs of the future, as it were. Uh, What have you, Scott, learnt about, you know, seeing the cohorts of people coming through, what is different about the way you, inverted commas, educate them as to how they're educated at college or at school? I mean, I'll
2: just base this on the feedback that we get. So uh, a good example is, you know, one of our engineers who has a computer science degree said to us that she's learnt more in the 14 weeks that she's trained with us. than she did over the three years Doing her computer science degree. You know, I guess our training is is very focused. Uh, It's it's extremely practical. There's lots of team engineering projects and, you know, relevance to the type of work that they will be doing when they work for our large corporate partners. And, you know, part of our aim is is to minimize uh, the gap between education and employment. So the environment, the learning environment that we have created within Digital Futures emulates the types of environments that they will be going into once they start working with these organizations so we focus you know very much on things like you know work delivered on time communication standards you know all these things that will be expected of them as they as they go into the workforce and that's and that's really how we do it but that's that's a sort of feedback we've we've made it extremely practical and relevant to the type of work they will be doing in our corporate partners once they join
0: And the final kind of elephant in the room that we haven't talked about is obviously work from home. I mean, we're all doing this from our uh, bedroom stroke uh, electronic music studios. Um, (laughs) Jimmy, in terms of the kind of people you talk to on your podcast, I presume a lot of them are talking about work from home and hybrid working as one of the issues they're thinking about. And Scott, in terms of how you're training people and in fact, in talking to your clients, the big companies that want these people, is, is work from home a thing or, or not? Let's start with Jimmy.
1: Well, I think the work from home... Uh it's definitely a thing and, and we'll kind of carry on for those that can. I am always aware with, with this kind of conversation that happens in, in the media and so on. There are people like us who have the are fortunate enough to be able to do that, you know. Um my wife as a doctor isn't going to be able to kind of do it anytime anytime soon.
0: <laughs> that is true,
1: unless you put all the patients in the city. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Which of course it was that. I mean, that was the traditional GP way, wasn't it? But anyway, um yeah. I think there is so I think working from home is kind of relatively straightforward. What I don't really think anyone has done is cracked like how the office is going to work in the future. And I love going to offices. Right, I love kind of, you know, the kind of history of an enterprise and a company and so on. Like you know, one of the best days I've had in the last few months was going to Gymshark and kind of like just seeing it all because it's just so I find offices quite exciting places, um, and I think they'll get. Jimmy, you are you are you are a very very sad person, but also
0: apart from your fetish in, in offices, how have you managed to build a career which involves you working in your study at home?
1: Yeah, I know exactly. It's basically all the. <laughs> It's all the best bits of my job from number 10, right? Speaking to entrepreneurs about where they're growing rather than having to kind of deal with Brexit and the latest round of negotiations and meaningful vote three or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, but it's it's great, but it's but definitely miss kind of like that engagement and, and camaraderie as well, I think, is a mm. big thing because people go to work for so much more than just like money. I mean, the key caveat is like we obviously wouldn't go to work without money. But there's so much else that it kind of gets wrapped up in. And I think sometimes, you know, government has a way of looking at things. You know, the Treasury particularly is numbers on spreadsheets and so on. And actually people want so much more, particularly earlier in your career as well. I I think it's just so important, all that kind of osmosis learning that you do. And I'm I'm like, you know, I'm conscious now. We've We've got a producer and a Kickstarter. They're both starting out on their careers. And, you know, I am trying to do as much in person as possible with them but it's hard because at home is extraordinarily convenient
2: yeah i think jimmy you picked up on the on the point i was going to talk about which is the importance of that that contact and that and, and the environment and, and how you build culture very very difficult to do when working remotely and there is just so much benefit especially for those that are at an early career level and the benefit they get from working in a team now and to answer your question, the majority of the organizations that we're working with or will be working with will adopt some sort of hybrid model unless, of course, you're Goldman Sachs or, and some of these other firms that have insisted all office workers back. But the, the likelihood that I think is that uh, it will be uh, a hybrid model going forward. I think there are, there are benefits to, to that.
0: But in terms of um, the soft skills you're teaching your graduates, yeah. are you having to teach them about? sitting alone in their bedroom doing some programming.
2: Yeah, well this this <laughs> this, this this is this is, this, is, this is certainly the challenge. So the, the the technical learning is done online and will probably continue to be done online, but certainly when it comes to developing their presentation skills, communication skills, our, our very strong preference is that's done in person, you know, at our academy locations across the UK. Because I think, you know, being to, you know, being able to pick up on those nuances and read the room and body language and making impact in a meeting and all these things, you you really need to do that. In
0: and learning from their peers as well. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. Really enjoyed that. chief
1: jobs for the future, available on all good podcast platforms. It's number one. Oh, you know what podcast charts are. They're a complete the complete vanity metric.
0: It's the number one podcast in Jimmy's house. <laughs> uh but it is extremely good and very entertaining. And obviously, uh if you're thinking about hiring some software engineers, please call me or Scott. Thanks so much, guys.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.